Hey everybody, Jeff Lander here with the BeachCast. Uh, this time I'm going to do something a little different. In the past, uh, the shows have always focused on some of my volunteer work, uh, working with uh, animals in the environment, and haven't said much about my professional life, but in, in real life I'm a computer game developer. I was asked to come speak as a guest speaker at Santa Monica Library uh, to a bunch of teenagers about computer game development. And I thought that was real important because the game industry is really lacking on homegrown talent. Kids are coming out of school without the skills required to really enter into some of these high-tech careers. And I don't know if it's from a lack of interest in math and science or, or what, but uh, I think they just oftentimes don't know the opportunities exist. So I like to try to get out there and do what I can to try to make a difference in that. So the show, uh, the talk was kind of long, so it's divided into two parts. The first part will be focused on uh, introduction to games and gaming, uh, and then the kind of jobs that are in game development. And then the second half will be on uh, what kind of education is required and some questions from the kids. So I hope you enjoy the show. That's right. So, yes, as they've all said, my name's Jeff Lander. Uh, I have my own uh, computer graphics uh, software company that does video games called Darwin 3D. Uh, I also am currently working with uh, Luxoflux, which is a company that's uh, owned by Activision, and we do console video games. Uh, most recently, we uh, released Shrek 2, which some of you sound like we're testers on, so you've, you've seen that game before. You're probably sick of seeing that game by now, I'd imagine. Uh, we did that. We did True Crime Streets of L.A., uh, going back to Vigilante 8, and we're working on True Crime 2 right currently, which I'm not going to be showing any of. So uh, the topic of the top is just what's going on in the game industry. You all sound like you know pretty much what's going on in the game industry already. But what I want to say is, what did it take for us to get from here, which is Pong, which probably some of you have never played or seen what it looked like, but this is... When I was growing up, this is what the video games look like, and that was the kind of realism we have. So we're going from that to this, and that is the current state of the art in video games. That's a demo from EA showing what they're going to be doing on the PlayStation 3. So, you know, we've come a long ways from having blocked black and white graphics to having, you can see the sweat coming off the guys as they're fighting, and, and the video of this is just simply incredible. Um, it requires a lot of work. So let's go back in a little bit of history, and most of you are probably young enough that you might not have even seen any of this stuff. But the early days of home video games, when you actually had the console in your living room, they had Pong, which I showed a screenshot before, but really started to open up with the Atari 2600, which is stuff that's kind of, uh, now they sell them on the joysticks. Have any of you guys seen those joysticks that have the Atari games? When I was growing up, that was the uh, uh, game for us. That was the thing. And so you got little space invaders here. Um, how many of you, you all seem to know pretty much about computers, but uh, when I'm going to talk about like 8-bit and 128-bit, uh, we'll, we'll talk about what that means. But the Atari 2600, which was the first real consumer video game console, had it was an 8-bit system, which just means that it could have all of the numbers went from 0 to 255 in each of the numbers on the bus, and it had 128 bytes of RAM. Now, a byte of RAM is what it takes to represent one letter on the computer. So the entire memory for the Atari 2600 computer could only store 128 letters at a time, and we had to kind of make games fit in that. And 
So the graphics were 320 pixels across by 200 pixels across, but they were kind of blocky. So you see, and the number of colors was like 4 to 16, depending on modes of these different consoles. But the good part about those days is you could make a game with one guy. It could be one guy in his room. He could knock it out in a couple, three weeks, a month, two months, up to five guys. They sold 25 million of those consoles back then. Um, and the budgets were really tiny. You know, I said 100,000, but they could go much less. Jump ahead another decade to the Sega Genesis, which where Sonic the Hedgehog comes from and all those games. We've now gone from 128 bytes to 128,000 bytes of RAM, which is quite a bit more. We, it, and there was also VRAM. We could actually fit a lot more graphics, so the graphic realism jumped up a whole level. You didn't get much more screen resolution, right? It's still 320 by 224 in this case. So it's a slightly better screen resolution. The team sizes, though, because now we're starting to do art. Back in these days with the Atari 2600, a lot of times the way we did art was we took a piece of graph paper, and everywhere we wanted a dot, we'd color in the graph paper. And so you'd, you'd end up with a grid of dots. And then you'd add those up, and that would be the number. And so it was basically like a guy sitting there with graph paper making the graphics. Well, come about the Genesis time, we actually have artists getting involved doing art and and it's not just kind of tech guys sitting there doing the art, although still a lot of tech people did the art. But there's some style to this and some art going on. So the team sizes bump up because we start to have artists, we start to have people that are specialized in doing things that's not just one guy. So 5 to 15, 150 million of those units still, the, those games still sell today. So th th that system is still going strong. Budgets of those games are still like $250,000, so relatively minor. So what we're seeing is just, this isn't a decade how far it came, but now we're starting to get, come 1994, the Sony PlayStation comes out, and you're all familiar with the PlayStation now. So we've got about the same resolution of graphics again, right? 320 by 240. The colors are different. Now we're getting full, uh, you know, 16,000 colors, uh, uh, 32,000 colors kind of situation going. Um, the important step there is all the games prior to this fit on little cartridges and didn't have much memory. You know, we were talking about 128 bytes. Now we can fit things on a CD that has 640 megabytes. Just a, You can put a lot of stuff on there. So you start to get these really big worlds with all these textures that look really good. But that means that our team sizes had to go up from a couple guys kind of sitting in their room working on it to real productions with real teams five to 50 guys. Now, some people can still do these games with a small group. And, and there's some of those, if, if any of you have seen some of the early PlayStation games, like uh, uh, oh, there's some of them that didn't take that many people. But some of them still required up to 50 people because they had all these movies and they had all this action. And I'm showing some of the fighting games. And Tomb Raider was huge back then. Uh, football's always great on any of the games. Sales of these units are 100 million plus. I don't even know what the accurate figure is for PlayStation 1, but there's 100 million of those systems out. There's over 8,000, probably close to 10,000 different games for these systems available. So that's a lot of stuff. Almost a billion uh, games sold on that thing. So, I mean, that's a, that's a whole lot of stuff. But in the budgets for these games, when we're as developers developing these games, we're getting up into the million dollars per game to create one of these games. So over the course of like the next decade from the Genesis days with five people and 100,000, we're now up into the millions. So getting more current. So this is 1994 going to 2000. Now it's only six years later. Screen resolution has quadrupled. 
So now we have 640 by 480, which is the quality of your TV, which is what a DVD looks like and real beautiful. Uh, similar kind of games, football, but yet it's way more realistic. All you've played the PlayStation 2 know that it's real, looks really good. The storage now is up to four gigabytes, so it's 4,000 megabytes of information that we can source. So we can start, we have to develop things, and the consumer, you guys also, expect these games to be full of content, be full of worlds, lots of characters, lots of stuff. So that means our team size has now gone up again, right? It takes more people to create these games. So we got 15 to 100 people now working on these games. Sales of the console is around 75 million. I've seen numbers up to 100 million on PlayStation 2. And the budgets are now getting serious. We're starting to start look like we're making a movie now, right? And we're just making games. So the budgets are in the $5 million to $12 million range. So they're starting to get some serious money spent on, on these games. So here we are in, you know, we got 2005. So it's been five more years, and we're ready for the next phase in this. So I'm just going to look at what we just found out this week, is all you may be familiar, right across town at E3, we're having the show where they're unveiling the PlayStation 3 and the, the Xbox uh, 360. And what's happened is now we're getting to where we have almost as much memory on these systems as you do on, on your PC at home. And your PCs cost thousands of dollars. These systems are going to be in the couple hundred dollars. And they're going to have more graphics capability than supercomputers. Basically, even now, my cell phone has more power than that we had in the Genesis days on it. Uh, and, and this thing, that T-flops stands for teraflops. It's floating point operations per second. It's just a bunch of, it's just saying that this can do a ton of math, more than like supercomputers a few years ago could do. Uh, and the screen resolution now is 1920 by 1080i, which is high definition television. So you start seeing um, some things that look good. And I'll, I'll show you a couple of, uh, uh, if I can manage it, a couple of videos of some stuff that just got shown uh, at E3. And this is like fresh off the download. And, and most of you probably have seen some of this stuff because it sounds like you're avid gamer. Uh, we've oh. seen an early demonstration. So this is some test footage that they're doing for R&D on the PlayStation 3. And that's a game city. So this is London. Um, we were looking at this video on our high-definition televisions at work. And many people came by, thought it was actually video footage, that this was not a game footage. And this is what the games are going to be like in the next couple of years. Uh, I will, uh, let's see if I can pop up another one. Um, here's Gran Turismo. Let me shut that off. So yeah, that, it's pretty incredible. Um, this is Gran Turismo, which some of you may have seen as a car racing game. Uh, if you walked up, even on the PlayStation 2, there was more than one time that I saw somebody playing uh, Madden football, and I thought I was watching football. But if you saw this coming on your TV, you would think somebody was watching a road race. And that, that's game footage of uh, car racing games that are going to be coming now. So that's enough. I, I got some more clips that we can show uh, that are like that. but. Uh, Let's go up to that. Okay, so here we are as game companies, these local teams of people that were only, what are we saying, six years ago making games with five to 15 people looking at coming up with this quality graphics. Oh, first I should say, 
they're, they're talking about now from, we were just getting used to filling a DVD full of info. We put music and all sorts of stuff on there to fill it. We've made another leap with the, the PlayStation 3. We've got to fill 25 to 50 gigabytes versus data, which is 25, well, it's what, uh, 10 DVDs worth of data that we can stuff on this thing. Um, so we're, as a game company, we're looking at it saying, oh my gosh, we're going to have to have so many artists and, and people working on these projects. Our team sizes now have to go up to 50 plus, probably. And the budgets, we don't even know how much we're going to spend, uh, but we're anticipating that we're up in the 8 to $10 million range for budgets for these games. Now, this, you, you compare that to a movie. A movie will still spend $100 million on a game. But these days, we're spending $8 million, and then you figure out how much they spend on marketing. On my last project, they spent about, let's call it $5 million to make the game. They spent twice that, or another $10 million, just to market and sell that game. So for the company to get the game out, it's, it's $15 million to get it out on the shelf. And the sales, who knows? Uh, it's probably going to be huge. We anticipate another 100 million units of these things out there, and maybe another billion titles sold. Okay, so you all basically know most of this stuff, but any questions about what I talked about there? Okay, so what you may be interested in is, is talking about what kind of jobs are in this business, and, and that's what I do. I've been working in this industry in both television and games for 15 years or so. So these are the type of jobs. It's easy to categorize them to say that they're, well, let's go through them. There's basically programmers, artists, uh, production people, and then uh, audio people, things like that. So I'm just going to go through them. Since uh, com creating computer games is highly technical and involves programming interaction, the programmers have kind of led the way, starting back in the days when we were the only ones there, and we sometimes get a little annoyed that we have to create games with anybody else, but I'm not an artist. I can't make beautiful images, so I rely on other people. Uh, but the programming is the most technical and the most education requirement to get in there. It is also where you have the final say and control of the project in that you're the last one whose hands is going to touch the thing. So you're able to kind of do your little bit of tweaks in that. But it also means after everyone else has gone home, after, after the artists have finished their work and they've gone on vacation, and after the audio people and the production people have all gone home, it's you and the testers usually that are left in the room the day before the game ships because they're trying to get bugs. And so the programmers are the last one who get, get to go home after a project's done. Um, but the salaries are good. I, I don't know if anyone here yet cares about salaries, but um, those kind of things are important to us. We, the game industry pays pretty well. Uh, you start at 55000 somewhere around there, and go up to $300,000. Uh, this, is, this is all based on the IGDA, the International Game Developers Association, does a salary survey every year, and we're, we're, that's where we get these numbers. So we can break up the programmers into junior programmers, tools programmers, graphic engine, AI networking, and the lead programmer. The lead programmer is the guy who's kind of in charge of the entire project and is, manages the other programmers. Uh, a junior programmer is somebody who comes in and we may, if you're a junior programmer, tell you, what we need you to do is we need you to do spectacular effects. We want, we want sparks to fly when the tires squeal, and we want smoke, and we want, uh, I just worked on Shrek, so we had a special effect that was every time the ferry waved a wand, little particles flew off, and uh, there was glows everywhere. And so a junior programmer might do that kind of thing, or they might be in charge of, uh, say, some aspect of artificial intelligence. Uh, often you'll have an artificial intelligence 
programmer, somebody who's in charge of how the character moves and behaves. Uh, graphics programmer, just in charge of how it looks. So that, that's one of the jobs that's out there. And if you're really interested in kind of that mathematical and technical side of things, uh, programming can be very gratifying. If you Now, we're going to talk about this, but you may think, oh, if I don't like math or I don't want to deal with the technical side and I want to do uh, uh, games, maybe I can do some art. I'm creative. I draw. I, I have my own website by now. You guys probably Do any of you guys have your own websites yet? Yeah, or, or contribute art. So, so you're already starting to deal with some of these tools. Uh, the artists, in the broad sense, would cover anyone who makes any kind of content for games, and that could be the, just the title screens. You know, we we have somebody that all they do is design the the interface screens, and that's actually a very difficult job. Uh, there's people who just. It used to be that we'd have one artist on our team, or, or a few artists on our team, and now on. I would say most production, 75% of the production staff is artists, and maybe 20 or so percent is, is engineering or programmers. Um, it can vary, but uh, that tells you that we have a lot of artists involved because we have to have artists with these 3D games creating the models, making the textures, doing the animation, creating the level design. Uh, basically, the designer might just give an artist a sketch. And I have some, I have some props. Uh, Here's some uh, sample art and, and some stuff. So this is, this is something that a designer uh, who is an artist, a sketch artist, might have designed. This is for like a, a kind of hot rod car racing game. Uh, you design, uh, have a sketch like this, and then they'd give this to the modeling staff and say, okay, here it is. You guys go out and build it. Or, uh, or there might be uh, just some, here's a concept art of, of a city street scene. I don't know if you guys can see that. That would just be some concept art that a, a conceptual sketch artist would do. And then the art and modeling staff would have to go build those worlds. Uh, I, have some, I have some other stuff, and you guys are welcome to come look at this. The, the, this is, again, some more concept art that then would get turned into actual game models. So, so if you're just a sketcher, but you, yet you don't really know how to model on the computer yet, there's, there's interesting jobs for you, too. So that's the artist. Oh, an artist, the salary is still fifty-five to 200000 maybe a little less than the programming, but pretty, pretty good. A lot of opportunities for artists because the, the companies demand so many artists. Um, a designer, you always hear about game designers. In fact, that the funny thing about that clip that I played at the beginning that was these guys, and I, I don't know anything about that school, and, and uh, Lena obviously knows from the academy, uh, they put these kind of commercials you look at and go, well, uh, game testers would never go, oh, I'm just finishing up, uh, speeding up this level, and I'm going to change the art. That, that's kind of silly. Uh, but a designer is the hardest to define job, really, in games, because it's something where you could actually create the levels. You could come up with some concepts. You could, you could be in charge of just, like, fighting a, a design that would say, oh, I want him to, to do this kind of move when this happens. Uh, and that, so it requires a lot of experience. And, and that's, a, that's kind of the job that a lot of people look at and say, I can do good game design. I've played lots of games. And it just requires a lot of hard work and dedication to get to the level where you're a good game designer. Uh, some of you mentioned you've done some testing already, which is amazing and great. The, the leading way to becoming a game designer is to start through the testing department because it really gives you a feel for how the whole production works. Uh, yes? Oh, I have a question. Um, mm -hmm. Global design also take that sort of 
Level design is kind of this interesting half artistic, half design thing because most of the time level design involves some kind of 3D art tool. But if, you come, if, if you're looking at a game or a company where they use level design tools like some of the first person shooters or those kind of games, that might fall into the realm of more designer because you're not actually creating art. Uh, but it's kind of a mix, and usually what happens is there's dedicated level artists, and then there's level designers who, and, and the traditional level designer would be in the design department, and they'd kind of tune gameplay. They'd say, oh, this is where the enemies go, this is where the coins sit, and this is where the power-ups are, and, and put the right behaviors on things. Um, so that's kind of in between, but that would be the road. And, and as you'll see with the game industry, so uh, young, and there's so much cross-work, Somebody who's good at art and has a good eye for design or plays a lot of games can kind of cross over and do a lot of game design and art. Or there's also designer programmers who do a lot of programming yet also dictate some of the design. Uh, again, salaries are good. We don't need to delve that. So, so the kind of design jobs you might have the quote game designer who's like kind of works with the concept from the producer and kind of makes gameplay to fit in that. Uh, level designers, like we were just saying, even a writer would be considered in the design department. And, and in that case, you would say, hey, uh, uh, we've got a, this game scenario where this guy comes up to this door and it's locked and we want him to say something, and the writer would write custom dialogue for that. And it used to be it didn't matter, and you play some of the older games and the dialogue's really cheesy. And, and what I like to think of is, is that games are now where like B action movies were a few years ago, and all the dialogue's really corny uh, and and cliche, but we're starting to get more serious about it because it's starting to be more about art, and so you're hiring writers and cinematographers. We even have uh, cinematographers now who go in and design what the shots look like. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that can be done in the design department. In the audio department, it used to be the kind of joke that the audio department was the last thing anyone thought of. Uh, but now we have surround sound on the games. We have full soundtracks. We have music scores on these games. So audio is becoming more and more important every day. Uh, again, if you guys have any questions about salaries, we can go into that. Um, but there's all sorts of jobs that are in the audio. We, we are now kind of like an old-time movie studio where they have an audio guy who's doing Foley, which is like he's making all the footstep sounds. He's in a stage with like metal boots on and clanking around, and they say, oh, we need a custom sound effect when... Uh, there were some funny things in Shrek that were like when, when Donkey kicked the watermelon, it needed a custom sound effect, and so the sound effect guys are like, oh, okay, let's buy some watermelons and let's smash them and record it and see what's going on. Or for a car racing game, we actually want it to sound like the real cars, so we brought in all these cars and recorded them so they sounded really accurate. So we're starting to take sound really seriously in games. Uh, and then the other jobs are like production jobs. This is, this is where you get into the game testing, uh, testing leads, producers, these are kind of the backbone of, to make sure that the game has a schedule and has a start and has a beginning, a middle, and end. And they schedule all the time. And sort of the producer is the guy at the end of the day who's in charge of each game. Who the producer would say, this is the, my vision for the game and this is what I want it to do. And uh, I go through. So lots of jobs, lots of different opportunities. And then there's miscellaneous stuff. Everything else you need to run any kind of big business that has 50 to 100 people, 
network people because you, as you'd expect, we have a whole lot of computers in the game industry. Uh, legal department, office workers, marketing, finance, you know. If you, if you guys are interested in a job and, and, but yet you go, I love games, but you know, I, all I know is how to run a website. There's a job for you in the game industry. Uh, uh, okay, so uh, the, what is the, the production process? How do we make these games? It's like any big production, like, and we, we tend to relate it to movie productions because that's the easy thing to do. M modern console games, which uh, PC games have a little bit differences, but these days it's about the same. A modern console game is two plus years to create. So from the time we start it to the time it, it gets released to the public, it's about two years. Some of them way more. Some of you guys probably have been waiting for a game you heard about eight years ago or five years ago, and it's still not out. But uh, some of them come pretty quick. So what do we do for production? We probably come up with an idea of pitch. And, and this is what a pitch book would look like. And this is, this is for a game that hasn't been created yet. But uh, uh, is a concept and design. And this one's heavy art. So it's got, oh, this is what it'd look like. And this is the story. And this is what some of the environments would look like. And here's some, what the people would look like and what the gameplay is. And so what, what would happen is we'd take a pitch book like this to publishers like Activision or EA and say, because basically, as we said earlier, games are really expensive. We're talking $6 million to make a game. None of us can afford to just start making It's too big a risk. It used to be when I started in this business, I could work on my little project at home. I could copy all the floppy disks for my Apple II. I started out working on the Apple II, which some of you probably remember. Uh, uh, and I would copy the games, and I would put them in a Ziploc bag with a, a sheet of instructions, and I'd go down to my computer store, and I'd sell them a bunch. And they'd sell them. Well, it, not anymore. There's Walmarts and Targets, and you've got to get into Best Buy, and you have to have a big thing so everyone knows about the game. So millions and millions of dollars get spent on these things. So we have to get the producers and we have to get the publishers interested. So we come up with the game design and we work on it for three, three to six months. We get somebody to pay up this $5 million to make this game. Uh, we then start pre-production, which pre-production is like all the testing when you go, oh, I want to see if this is fun. I have this idea for, for this portion of the game and I want to make sure it's fun. We, we, we did a lot of production design on, on different games that try to make sure that the game's fun because you don't want to spend two years and $5 million and you get done and the game isn't any fun, right? That would kind of be bad. Uh, so we spend some time on pre-production. Then the bulk of the time is spent actually creating the game. And you get these games. Let's, let's just go through. Uh, somebody, what's your favorite game right now? Right now, uh, probably World of Warcraft. World of Warcraft. Oh, that's okay. World of Warcraft is kind of an exception to the rule because that's a massively multiplayer online game. I have a story about massively multiplayer. I know some of the guys who work on these games, like EverQuest 1. And there was about two years ago where everybody wanted to make a massively multiplayer game because they were going to be the next big thing. And you remember about it maybe two years ago, there was announced there were going to be a hundred of these kind of games. There was going to be a science fiction one and a car race one and, and all sorts of different ones. And what you've seen is there's only ended up to be three or four that are successful. And the reason is, and this is, this is my favorite story about this, is the guy who said, oh, you want to make a massively multiplayer game. And let's say I, I'm, I'm going to be the developer and I want to make World of Warcraft. The way he said to make World of Warcraft is to gather together $10 million, put it in a big pile on the floor, and light it on fire and burn it to the ground. 
then gather up another $10 million and make your game. Because what they did was they spent about $10 million just trying to figure out how to do these games. And then they had to actually make the game work. So, so you take everything I said and multiply it times 10, and that's where you got World of Warcraft kind of games. Uh, but that world, uh, I, I don't even know how many uh, cities they've created. And there's probably a team of 20 artists working on each of those cities. And there's probably, they probably have 150 plus programmers working on that project. So that, that, that's massive. But you look at it, so that was probably, I think they spent eight years in the making on that or something like that. And they've been working on that a really long time. Um, so at the end of that production process, you spend two years, you get the good game. Well, then you've got to make sure that it works. You've got to go through testing and play balancing, which is like, play balancing is you want to make sure it's not too hard, it's not too easy. You know, you've all played games where you said, oh, this game is just way too easy. I just blew through it, and it was, wasn't worth my money because it only took me 10 hours. Or there's a game that's so hard, you never get fat past the first level. So you've got to spend a lot of time in post-production, making sure it works. And then localizing, we uh, shipped Shrek and True Crime in eight different languages, seven different languages, <laughs> among them Finnish, Italian. Uh, one of the funniest things was to hear Shrek and Donkey talking in French. It was, uh, j'adore la creme, <laughs> instead of I love cream pies or something like that. So it was very funny. Uh, game industry diversity. Let's talk about diverse. Game industry, um, I'm wearing my work attire. There's not much of a dress code in the game industry. If you come in in a suit and tie, everybody looks at you like something's wrong. He's either interviewing for another job or he's some kind of business guy. We don't like him. So uh, there's no kind of dress code. All of you are dressed perfectly fine to work in the game industry right now. Uh, you, the only requirement is that you meet and hopefully exceed the entry requirements to get in there, which is like you have to be able to do the job. You have to be able to do that. But beyond that, we don't care where you're from. We don't care you know, anything about whether you're a girl or a boy. Or we don't care any of that stuff. Uh, I'm calling it a meritocracy. That just means that it's, if, if you're good at the job, you're going to get the job. And, and Right now, there's a severe shortage, particularly of homegrown talent, like of people in Los Angeles working for game companies in the hotbed of game development. And the reason isn't because we prefer to hire others. It's because there's just none of you out there yet that are able to do that job. And, and it's maybe because they, they weren't interested or what. I grew up and game, working on games and liking games was very geeky. Nobody thought that that was cool at all. Uh, and it's maybe true to some extent now, but it does seem like there, there's a lot more people interested in playing and, and being a part of games now. Uh, so hopefully that's going to change. Hopefully some of you are here because you're interested in this. Because uh, we'd love to see a lot of people here. Um, there's too few women in the game industry. It's, it's you know, I don't see too many women here now. <laughs> but uh, uh, we definitely would love to have uh, women in the game industry. Margaret's been with me, my wife, uh, Margaret, has been with me here uh, at the game industry conferences when we had uh, a f two female employee artists and Margaret and myself walking around. And we were the big hit of the computer conference because I had three women with me and they just thought that was the greatest thing ever uh, and, and there's actually talk when um, 
when we go to conferences and we meet with other teams, there'll be people who'll say, they've got a girl programmer. And it was like, ooh, we got to go check her out. She's got to be something. Because there's so few women in there. And we just love, we'd love to see that. We'd love to get more diversity in there. Um, currently, because it's so hard to get talent from the local area or for the Los Angeles states, we have to bring in people from all over the world. Um, most current teams, the current team I'm on, has 20% or more foreign workers with visas. And, and um, I, I counted up of the programmers and artists that I'm working with right now, they represent 15 different countries. Everywhere from, I was going to put up a map that had all the dots, but Russian, Indian, uh, Finland, uh, Spain, uh, South America, just everywhere all over the world coming here because they were in a place where they really enjoyed working on the computer and learning how to do art. And, and we need that talent because we've got that 50 to 100 people that we need for these game companies. So we're real eager to get people interested in this stuff. Uh, and the game, com uh, game is very production-focused, production, production focused, which you'll hear about in the news that, oh, it can lead to long hours and hard work. And that's true. It's just like movie production or any kind of production. You can, if you take it real easy when it's not busy, when you get near the end, when it's like you have to get your game on the shelf for Christmas and it's October 15th and you start working more and more hours, it can be very difficult. And, so, and that's because we're a young industry that's just trying to figure out how many people we need to get this done. And, and so it takes a lot of people. Okay, that's the end of the first part. Uh, please uh, go ahead and listen to the second half of the show and send me feedback at beachcast at digital-beach.com because uh, I'd like to hear what you think. I'm going to be doing these kind of talks more in the future and I'd like to try to improve it. So thanks again.